Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So let me begin again by welcoming you to Easter Sunday, and I know that we, we did this already a little bit with a little bit of prompting, and you're probably excited to, to say the chant some more, um, but I'm going to make you wait, because, you know, I get to do that. So if you've been following with us all week, we have been uh, in this short series called Fulfilled, looking at Holy Week, and we looked how Jesus fulfilled the Passover meal on Wednesday to the Lord's Supper. On Thursday, we talked about that by reading scriptures in the, in the Passion of Christ, his last hours. On Good Friday, in all three different branch sites or mission sites, we looked at uh, Jesus' last hours with three different sermons, and they led us up to Jesus' death. That was here on Friday night where we read from Matthew 27, verse 50, and Jesus cried out aloud and again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But the interesting thing is, chapter 27 actually has 66 verses, and we're going through the whole end of the gospel. and We don't get to the resurrection until chapter 28. And so there's a couple of interesting things that we want to consider before we get to the resurrection. And we will get to it. But for now, we have to wait. And I think there's an interesting thing to tease out about this. The disciples, too, had to wait. In fact, that's what verse 1 of chapter 28 says. It says, this. It says now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb after the Sabbath. It's always a striking thing to me to think about the fact that in the wake of this most grievous injustice in the history of the world, most necessary act, most profound shift in all of history, the death of Christ, the followers of Christ are charged to do nothing. Right? You want to do something, we need to answer to this. And God has sovereignly ordained that the Sabbath day would happen next. So there's a whole day of them doing nothing but resting divinely appointed resting nonetheless, but resting. And so I'm going to have you wait just a little while before we say what we say with joy. We want to go back now and think about some of these verses because it helps us to see what it is that transitions in the wake of Jesus' death. His death and his resurrection are of paramount importance to the Christian faith. They are the bedrock of the Christian faith. And we want to see how these things shift. What happens? And Matthew uniquely records some rather strange and even unsettling things that happen immediately in the wake of Jesus' breathing his last. 
And so on Good Friday, we read, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And that takes us to verse 51. Let's read these verses. I'll read the verses. It says this, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and what took place? They were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to your word, on this Resurrection Sunday, like any other Sunday, we want to pray and ask your spirit to guide us, to shed your light on your word, that we would think and consider and feel and act upon your word in a way that's pleasing to you. Move in us now. Grow us. Conform us to the image of your Son. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So, we have some short verses here, and they give this brief acknowledgement of the profound significance of Jesus' atoning death and of his resurrection. There's a foreshadowing here, right? And so we sometimes think, well, yes, Jesus died for my sins, and absolutely that's true. But his death, as the Lamb of God, brings an end to the entire infrastructure of Judaism. We want to think about what happens when Jesus dies. The end of the entire infrastructure of Judaism happens in a moment. Done. The entire religious life that orients around the temple and around the sacrificial system that's practiced within the temple as an offering of God, to God for our forgiveness ends. Jesus' death puts an end to it all. The, the temple signifies God's presence among his people and the sacrificial system was a necessary accompaniment to the temple, enabling us as sinful people to be in his presence. Here's the thing. Everybody knows what these are, right? Signs. And different signs mean different things and serve different purposes. The stop sign, well, anybody want to take a guess? It means stop, right? It's not too complicated. Other signs give us a, a, a sense of identification. You're on Interstate 95. That's before Siri. Um, uh, other signs, like the, the deer jumping in the middle of the road, tells us about something but isn't something. It's a sign that says, be aware that on this road we see lots of deer jumping out on the road. 
But it's not, the, the sign itself isn't the deer jumping, right? It's just something that tells us about something that's going to happen. It's, it's something that points us to something else. Signs by nature are intended to point us to a thing which is a sign, not the thing itself. But you see, in Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, by the time Jesus' day came along, the Jews had looked at the sign of the temple and of the sacrificial system as the thing itself. No longer did it point to Christ, but now it became the thing itself. And Jesus is saying, no, they point to me. And so when I come, they are now fulfilled. Their purpose has come to an end. Jesus had already done this when he celebrated the, the Passover meal with his disciples that we looked at on Wednesday night. What do we call that, by the way? We call it the Last Supper, right? It's Jesus' last supper, but it's also a meal signifying something else, or really someone else. The meal centered on a lamb, and Jesus not only partakes of that meal with his disciples, he fulfills it by becoming the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So too, with the temple and the sacrificial system, they come to an end. So let's take a look at these verses again. We can look at these few verses and we can see that here too Jesus is fulfilling the role of the temple both in terms of God's presence and of the sacrificial system. Jesus' death immediately brings to an end the need for the temple. The veil being torn signifies the end of the temple, which will literally happen in AD 70. But here, the immediate theological necessity is wiped away. Instead of the words from the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, he writes these words in chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's his death, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, there's the curtain, that is his flesh. And so for many of us, we might be familiar with where the gospel writers talk about Jesus saying, tear down this, this temple and in three days I'll build it again as a sign that he actually is the temple. But here the writer of Hebrews is saying from a very priestly perspective, Jesus is the temple. His torn flesh gives us access to God, not the, the torn veil. That's just a symbol of that, a sign. The torn veil gives us access to God without me the mediation of a brick and mortar temple, but not without the mediation of the temple that is Jesus. We always need Jesus. Maybe I'll say that again. We always need Jesus. There you are. I've been up really early since the sunrise service. You guys got you know, to hang a little bit here. Matthew does something else interesting, though, right? He gives these other signs, right? This earthquake, which seems to cause rocks to split and tombs to open. That's a little weird. And bodies of the saints rising up. That's unusual. 
And the fact is that there's, they're really short, right? There's just this, this little brevity of verses, and the striking nature of them, uh, not surprisingly, causes all kinds of debate among scholars about what this means, and this is by no means the place to discuss that. But let me just say two things that will help us get a handle on why these are here. The first one is this. These signs, the earthquakes, the tombs opening, are connected to the veil being torn. Matthew puts them together. And so we want to see that they're intended as fulfillment of the temple, the ushering in of new life, resurrection life, which points us to the second thing. Matthew does tell us of the rising of the saints in connection not solely with Jesus' death, death, but most importantly with his resurrection. We can see that in the verses here, right? The tombs also were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection. So it's a little bit of a foreshadowing. In other words, these signs point to the inauguration of the kingdom of God. They give us a glimpse into the kingdom to come, a glimpse from the vantage point of the now of the kingdom into the not yet of the kingdom. I use that kind of language all the time here. If you're not here, we describe the kingdom as now and not yet because when Jesus comes, he says the kingdom is at hand, but that's the now of it and the not yet of it is the fullness of it that comes when he comes again to usher in the fullness of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom. And so in some ways, these little glimpses, the saints rising, a foreshadow shadowing of the glorified bodies in resurrection is the little glimpse from the now of the kingdom into the not yet of the kingdom. This gets us our eyes forward looking towards heaven, not looking back at the history of Jesus, but Jesus is saying, and Matthew's saying, look forward, look to the age to come. See the hope of that glory. That's what this is all about. Strange as they may be, even unsettling as they may be, this is what they point to. They provide for us, and let me say this boldly, a great and unshakable truth which rests upon the full weight of the infallibility of God's word, a hope. Most of the time, we simply can't see because the veil of the present evil age covers our eyes. But we do indeed have a hope. A hope of resurrection because he is indeed risen. Wait! Don't say it yet. I have that in my notes to make sure that you guys wouldn't jump in. What else do we get? When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So we've just taken a few minutes to consider the importance of what happened immediately upon Jesus' death, focusing us on the age to come, on the kingdom. But now we get to the actual burial itself. 
And we're told a couple of things that we want to note in passing here. We don't want to just gloss over it, just say a few points. One is we have this Joseph of Arimathea who is a disciple of Jesus. But Matthew tells us that he's also rich. And that actually also is fulfillment of Scripture. We read in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So we have fulfillment here that we want to acknowledge as well. Pilate gives the body to Joseph, which is a little bit unusual without any process. But he does, and you know, Matthew's gospel gives us quite a bit of detail about Pilate's reservations about convicting this man. He doesn't think he's guilty. He washes his hands of him ceremonially. His wife has a dream and tells him, don't, don't have anything to do with that. Pilate was probably like, whatever I can do. But we also notice that Jesus is placed in a tomb, and both of the Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, are eyewitnesses to it. And that has some importance when we think about defending our faith, because sometimes people will say, well, you know, it was probably dark in the morning, and when Mary got up to look at the tomb, she probably went to the wrong tomb. Nope, she knew right where it was. They were sitting opposite of it. They're eyewitnesses of him in the tomb. And so we see the immediacy of the death of Jesus. We see the burial process. And now we're going to see what happens next. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. There's a lot of irony in this portion of the story. Irony is defined as a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and can often be amusing as a result. There's a lot of irony here, interesting irony in these passages. Let me see if we can point them out to you. Firstly, what day is it? Well, it's the day after the day of preparation. What's the day of preparation? You would think that would be an obvious one, but I had to look it up. The day of preparation is the day set apart to prepare for Sabbath. Which means the day of preparation is the day before Sabbath. Which also means that the day after the day of preparation, the next day is what? Sabbath. Here's the first piece of irony. On the Sabbath, if you will, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that these guys really called Jesus out about his breaking of the Sabbath, tried to call him out on that, even though he was doing acts of mercy on the Sabbath. 
And here these guys are, the ones who are supposed to be exemplifying perfect Sabbath practice. And not only are they not observing the Sabbath, but they're conducting business, wicked business, deceitful business at that. Yeah. Irony. Striking thing. What are you guys doing? That's what they're doing. They gather before Pilate. And they pay homage to Pilate, sir. And then they degrade Jesus at the same time, calling him an imposter. And so we have that irony as well. They're conducting business on the Sabbath. But there's more irony. And that's this. And and this is an interesting irony. It's an irony on top of an irony, if you will. You may have known this or noticed this if you read through the Gospels often enough. You notice the Gospels have this common pattern in them where the people that are supposed to know, that are supposed to get it when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Gospels, don't. The religious leaders, they're supposed to know and they often don't get it and it's the ostracized and the ones that the religious leaders look down upon that are, that are not supposed to get it, that do get it. You familiar with that? Maybe you've seen that. If you're reading the gospel, you've seen it. That's definitely what happens all the time. But this is different. This is different. Three different times in Matthew's gospel, three different times in Mark's gospel, in fact, all four gospels document Jesus predicting his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. Matthew 16, if you're interested, Matthew 17, and then in Matthew 20. Three different times. Three different times he does this. Three different times he predicts his, his, his impending death and resurrection. And yet the irony is it's his enemies who hear it. And they express not joy, of course, but concern. Now, they don't actually think he's going to rise from the dead, but they're concerned that his followers are going to use this teaching to perpetuate his movement. There's more irony here, too, because every time that Jesus did taught that, every time he predicted that, his disciples showed an increasing unwillingness to accept it, to submit to it. And it would seem that that remained true for them even up until Jesus himself proves it to them in his resurrection, which we will see shortly. For now, let's simply say or note that God has providentially used the cynicism of his own enemies to further elevate his power and glory, which also is a rather wonderful irony. How, you might ask? by ensuring the impossibility of accessing the tomb from the outside. It's further secured. That's their goal. They're not worried that he's actually going to raise from the dead. They're worried that some kind of fraud's going to happen, and they're going to lose power. You can seal the, the, the tomb up all you want, because it's not the people getting into the tomb that are going to change it, right? It's what the Holy Spirit's doing in the tomb to bring Jesus out of the tomb. All together now. <laughs> That's what it's about. There's more irony with that as well. This, this puts God's full power on display to his glory. 
Now, as we move on to the next verses, let's just note one more bit of irony. Now, we already noted it, but not fully, and, and that is this. Not only did the chief priests and the Pharisees fail to observe the Sabbath, but Jesus' disciples, they did observe it. We said this before, right? Now, after Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. After the Sabbath. Good for them. They observed the Sabbath. But here's the irony. They didn't seem to be acting as if Jesus' multiple predictions of his death and resurrection were going to actually happen. Instead, Rightly observing the Sabbath, then afterwards they came to the tomb with reverence, with sorrow, with grief, with the intent to pay homage to Jesus. And we know this because the other Gospels tell us that they went and bought spices so that they can anoint the body. Their intent is to go see a dead body. So I want to pause here for a moment. And I want to ask you a question. Why did you come to church this morning? Now, if you're new here, or if you don't regularly come here, your answer may be, well, it's Easter. You come to church on Easter, right? That's what you do. Let me say it this way. Let me ask it a different way. If I were to create a scale, and over on this side is the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, and over on this side is the disciples, in terms of how they responded to those predictions, where are you? Where would you lie on that? The chief priests and the Pharisees acknowledged what Jesus predicted, and they labored to prevent it, while the disciples seemingly didn't even believe it loved Jesus, grieved his death. They didn't seem to believe. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the angel reminds them of this. We read, he is not here, he says to them. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Another reminder for them. Now, Luke immediately tells us that they did remember his words, but for us here today, why do we come? Or if I may ask it differently, if coming to church today is so important because of what we celebrate, then what would prevent you from coming the rest of the year? If the resurrection is that central to your Christian faith, and what we sometimes say in church is that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, then why would you not come regularly? That's what I'm asking. Not just what it means, but how it impacts the rest of your walk, the rest of your life throughout the rest of the year. And for all the knowledge that we can gain when we come to church on Easter Sunday or when we dig into Scripture in times of devotion, what matters most is whether or not you have had a sovereignly appointed encounter with the risen Christ. There you get it. There you get it. 
Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke's gospel, the, the angel reminds them of what Jesus predicted, and immediately they remembered and began to live as if indeed Christ was resurrected, which is what they did. They told others. They went and told others. Now let's look at how Matthew highlights this all-important event. We read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know what you seek. You seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay. What were we supposed to be shouting this morning? Let's try it again. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. So why are you here? Because he is risen indeed. Now, I asked why you came, right? But now let's, let's do it a little bit more detailed. How did you get here? For some of you, it was a joy. For others of you, you barely got here, right? Kids and traffic. Eh, you hemmed and hawed about whether you'd go or not. A million different things could have gotten in the way. All kinds of what we call secondary causes. But guess what? You're here. You're here now, which means what? God has this sovereignly appointed time for you to hear what? That he is, in fact, risen indeed. And not just the, the chant that we do in the church, but the reality, the life-impacting fact that Jesus is risen from the, the grave, alive now, seated at the right hand of the Father, orchestrating his plan for his church, his bride. Now, he is risen indeed. Now. God has brought you here for this. He's brought you here for this moment so that you too, like the women at the tomb, could have an encounter with the risen Christ. So that you too could experience the gift of saving faith in our risen Lord and begin a new relationship with him. And let me just say something here. This is so important. In fact, there is nothing more important than this. Nothing. There is nothing that should wrestle with this, that should vie for this attention. Not your work, not your family, not your children, not anything that has a beginning and an end, but only that which is eternal matters, and that's this. This is the only thing 
that matters. There is nothing else more important than this. You're here to hear that. Don't dismiss that. Don't think, well, yeah, that's cool. Or don't get caught up in the moment and then leave without solidifying your commitment to that truth. Your discipleship, your belonging to the body of Christ. Pray with someone before you leave. Fill out a card. Come back this Tuesday. We're going to meet. We're going to set up some tables right here. We're going to eat together. We're going to pray together. You should come and be a part of that. Come back on Sundays to worship. Come on Wednesdays to our Montgomery branch. There's lots of teachings there. I teach a class there. Someone's always teaching something there. There's lots of programs for kids, lots of ways for you to plug in and be part of the community of faith. Don't leave. Don't leave without locking that in. Let me tell you why. Because the moment you walk out this door, the world is going to tell you that was just hyped up emotion. The world is going to tell you that's not really true. It's a fraud. It's not scientifically viable. They're going to give you all that. They're going to convince you that the God moment that you're having right here is not really a God moment. Don't believe me? Well, Matthew says otherwise. Here's what he says. While they were going, who's that? The disciples in response to what Jesus says. So immediately after they're going, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and draw your attention to something interesting. The guards were there. They were like dead men, remember that? When they saw the angel, they witnessed something divine and something profound. I don't know if they witnessed Jesus. We're not told that. They did witness the angel. We are told that, and they responded to them. So you just wonder, exactly what were they doing when they went to tell Pilate? Were they rushing him and saying, we have good news, it's really true? Maybe. Maybe they were rushing to him and saying, hey, guess what? The thing that you were worried about, something happened, you need to be aware of this. But either way, the world gets in. They went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken some counsels, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They paid them off. And said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Which is a dereliction of their duty as soldiers. They're not supposed to allow that to happen. And they're getting paid off to say that. And so they say, if the governor, if the if if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The story that it wasn't really a resurrection. That God didn't divinely intervene and miraculously apply his power to his dead son to raise him from, life, from death to life. To empty that grave. Nah, that didn't really happen. And let me tell you, when you walk out this door, that story is still powerful today. And when you walk out, that's exactly what they're going to do. 
You get one hour a week in church, and then every other bit of time that you devote to scriptures and fellowship and prayer that strengthens you against that. You know why? Because the world is at odds with God. There's no neutral ground there. When you walk out the door of the church, you walk into the spiritual warfare. Some of us might note that there's some spiritual warfare that goes on in the church too. Yes, but definitely out there. Because we are at odds with God. The Bible teaches that, by the way. Before we were saved in Jesus Christ, we were enemies of God. Or either for God or we're against God. In the world we live in labors to convince us that we're at the center of all things. It is a veil of deception that we wear and we need the Holy Spirit to tear that veil from top to bottom to give us eyes to see. Don't walk out of here without thanking God that he's brought you to this place at this time for this divine moment. Take advantage of that. Don't wait till next year. Don't wait till Christmas time. Don't wait. Pray now. Come be a part of the community of faith. And now that Matthew has done all this, he's brought us this climactic moment of resurrection. Now that he's revealed himself in his resurrected form to his disciples, here's what he tells us. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus' last words to us. We're charged to tell others about Jesus. We're charged to make disciples, which means we must first be disciples before we can make disciples. We're charged to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we're going to be doing a little bit of that later today at 2 o'clock in Montgomery. We're going to have a baptism service, and there's some of them here. No, it's 2 o'clock. I checked it. It's on the card. I thought it was 2 All right, it's one o'clock. So if, you're, if you come back, you get to make fun of me for my administrative errors, which are many. Look at the card and don't pay attention to me when it comes to the administrative stuff. But don't leave without praying with somebody about the risen Christ and this God, divine, divinely God appointed moment. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for reminding me of that. It's happening today. We are baptizing. We want to encourage you to be part of that. And lastly, he charges us to take comfort and assurance in the ascended Christ who is always with us through the sending of his Holy Spirit and dwelling in us. So I'm going to close with that charge. Jesus charges us to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us, and taking great comfort that he, through his indwelling spirit, is always with us to the end of the age. He charges us to go forth from this place, from these walls, and be the church. Why? Because he is risen.
Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite uh, the team to come forward to lead us in one final song of response, and then I will come give benediction. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.